and welcome back to the Scottish Rugby Podcast brought to you by the Scottish Rugby Blog. I am Cammy Black as always and joining me this week on the podcast we've got Ian Hay. Well good evening, this is book club night. It is book club night, yes, we've got our uh, our smoking jackets on and our pipes and we're sat around a, a warm crackling virtual fire to uh, host our first book club and um, we're going to do a few of these over the coming weeks, It's um, we'll try and mix it up with some other bits and bobs um but um we've we've had a look on amazon um to see what's there um w- this week we're, we're starting with gregor townsend's autobiography which was released in 2007 um which as we'll come on to has has um a number of revelations i'm not entirely sure he would write it the same way if he was to write it now but we'll, we'll come to that later uh there's a few other things we found as well uh including some um romantic fiction based around the scottish rugby team featuring a wolf so that oh, might no. be quite good fun. I forgot you found this. <laughs> we might do that as kind of like that might be like a a, a, a podcast extra. <laughs> DVD bonuses. <laughs> yeah. DVDs. How old am I? Jeez. Um. So yeah, we're going to be doing that this week, and we'll pick some other books. If anyone's got any suggestions of Scottish uh, rugby related books, um, that you think we should tear into, uh, then by all means give us. Give us a shout and we'll happily consider them for book club. We'll try and give you at least a couple of weeks notice of any book we're going to do uh, just so you get a chance to go out and buy it. And we'll try and pick stuff that's available on Kindle and easy to pick up either secondhand or on Amazon. Places like that so you don't actually have to go to any shops. Um, there's been, um, even though there's no rugby, there, there has been news, Ian. Um, the transfer market is it still kind of trundles on. Um, Rory Hughes and... Um, Matt Smith are both leaving Glasgow. Yes, they are. Um, Mr. Hughes, it's not really a great surprise. Uh, I think my first experience of him was playing in the Melrose Sevens uh, when Warriors sent a team. It was 2001, 2000, no, no, sorry, 2011 or 12. Yeah. Um, when Nico was playing and you saw Hughes. Was, when when Hughes... was that when they sent Carl and had Carl and Alice kicking around as well? Was that later? Oh, that may have been the year after because I think they won it two years in a row. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Carl, Carl Ives was just taking the taking the urine directly out of people's urethras. Um, I remember, I think it was against Stirling County, he'd picked the ball up in the left wing. Uh, the entire defensive line had moved out to try and block him. So he just ran 20 metres laterally and then just out-sprinted everyone else on the side. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Hughes, uh, he showed some great form in that first year. It, I mean, the amount of gas on him was incredible and you saw the size of him, you thought... This guy's a. This guy could be an absolute monster, but uh, numerous injury issues. He's never quite hit the form that he'd have a couple of games where he'd look good, but every time he'd walk out in the pitch, he'd like he'd have usually his left leg strapped up to to the hilt, and so you were always concerned about his fitness. Um, Matt Smith, I think it's more of a case of uh, there's there's a lot of good open sides. Or back rows, like seeing as the back rows seem to be quite of a, a bit of a sort of mixed bag now. Even Ryan Wilson's played at seven before, <laughs> um, so I, I don't think that Matt Smith just wasn't going to get enough game time. And given that he's like 23, 24 years old now, he needs the game time. He's a very talented player. He's very good, but he's not getting attritional rugby. Um, no, it'd be interesting to see where he ends up because he was, he was always a very promising player. He's quite a bra- very abrasive, always brought the game line. Um, so he, hopefully he'll get picked up somewhere. Yeah, um, I mean, he'll probably end up having to go to 
a sort of lower lower standard English Premier team or maybe even in France like Alex Dunbar has done. But he's he's never let Glasgow down he, and like I said, you know, he's a he's a damn fine player but just you know, the the number of options that, that Glasgow have at seven just kinda of limits his game time and limits his development so it's maybe better for him. Yeah. I think I suppose it as well and the, the the traditional option of shipping him along the along the road isn't open because it, there's an equal log jam at Ember as well in terms of back rowers. Yeah, he kind of broke up with it there, but um, well, I said there's uh, no point in going to Edinburgh either because yeah, they've got the same I, problem there. It's, I mean, it's yeah, the one I mean, thing we've—it's the one problem that we've got at Scotland in a, in a good way—is that we've got too many back rows. Yeah, I mean, look, Edinburgh have had to pap out John Barkley, one of the one of the sort of recent—I'd even probably call him that—one of the sort of great players of the last Scottish fifteen years. Um, you know, we've got we Watson, Richie, Crosby, all that lot coming through there in Edinburgh. It's uh, yeah, he wasn't going to get a lot of game time, so it's probably best he moves on. Yeah. Um, the other bit of news um, is that Rug- World Rugby have announced that you can no longer score a try by putting the ball at the base of the posts pads. Um, we think it, now is this true? Because I saw this on Twitter today, but I didn't get a chance to click the article. This is a direct response to Pierre Schumann lifting up the post pad during a Pro 14 game to stop stop um, stop the team scoring. See, no, I I think it's definitely influenced the decision. Um, it was it was pretty canny on field play from uh, Pierre Schumann to do so, such an action. <laughs> but then, well, as we've read in the the Tooney documentary. Uh, at one point, he ran into a post during World Cup training, and it's like there's maybe a pattern on that. Um, so now, now I've also seen that people are suggesting we should go for the American football style posts. We just the one, the one stick at the back, uh, which could also prove. Well, some people think it could, could prove problematic because of the in goal depth area. But yeah, if you just say like. That's how far back the stick goes. That's all. As you know, I think that's a wee bit of a, a uh, pointless, a facile argument. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, there, there. I mean, there has been times when you've seen teams deliberately just thinking, "Hang on, we can cut out a meter of this pick and go just by diving for the base of the post." Yeah, and it's uh, really hard to defend. Although it is fun. It's always fun. Yeah. What and we'll never. I suppose we'll always have James Haskell. Trying to do it and running smash back it bang into the <laughs> into the post. You know, we'll always have Paris. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it seems like a wise move because uh, yes, yeah, some teams were starting to take the mic. I think when Pierre Schumann did it, I believe he's actually meant to pronounce Schumann. Um, was it again monster? But it, it was, was an Irish team because I know that yeah, I know Irish Twitter it, were particularly up in arms about it. Yeah, it was one of those sort of like classic pick and go, boring as things that come out of your bottom experiences. Um, so he just went, "All right, curveball." Could <laughs> <laughs> I get supposed to? Um, yeah, it was very clever and quite funny. Um, but yeah, it's also quite risky. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing in the rules against it. I think we had this argument well, at the time with the, with, with yeah, the Irish lads. They were saying it was dangerous. It's dangerous play, and it's like it's quite a stretch. I think but... I always find it a stretch when any Irish person complains about dangerous play when you see what they did to <laughs> Hamish Watson at the World Cup. True, you know, yes. 
Oh no, that's a that's a legal entry to the rock. Yeah, but you've deliberately just twisted his knee rounds. Mm. Yeah. And then some of the rocking and the the England game at Twickenham. I think it was uh, James Ryan and one of the flankers. They both went in. There's like there's there's going below the hips, and then there's deliberately driving your shoulder into someone's head who's on the ground. Yeah. And and so. I can't remember who it was, but Ben Ryan had retweeted it saying, how am I supposed to tell my kids this is legal rocking? Yep. And it isn't. So, you know, I, I always find when, uh, particularly after my um, sexton gate issue, if, if an Irish person complains to me about fair play in rugby, I just have to <laughs> just scoff, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very good lads. Yeah. Uh, the other kind of final news that's been kicking about for a while, and I, th- I don't know if it's just I don't know someone with a vested interest is trying to drum up interest or the Pro 14 are trying to keep their sponsors hanging on for as long as they can, but there is talk, or it was leaked. I mean, it's Wales Online to leaked it, so... Um, it's pro- Well, Pinch Soap also, they're, they're normally fairly reliable because I think the the, the WRU's got more leaks, more holes in a sieve when it comes to leaks, probably worse than the SRU to a certain extent. Um but the, uh, the 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 plan at the moment, or one of the proposals, is that everyone will play everyone in a derby, which solves the issue of of people not being able to cross um, national boundaries. What, what they haven't said is what then happens after that, because then the the plan is to have at least a semi final and final of the playoffs, which, given you're going to have at least, well, you're going to have Irish teams involved. You might you will have Edinburgh involved. It means going to Wales. <laughs> Did that upset you? <laughs> if it's a Derby match, you try to say Edinburgh are going to be Glasgow. I'm just saying Edinburgh are currently top of the conference. Right, right, fair enough. That's that's all I'm saying. It's not about um, no. It's it's not it's not about who's going to win or lose those two matches. It's more Edinburgh top of their conference. So it's it's highly unlikely. I think at this point they wouldn't make the semi-finals. No, Edinburgh are going great guns. Um, Leinster obviously with their ridiculous backing. Uh, and the, the fact that a second string 15 can prob- probably hammer any other team in the mm. league, with the exceptions of, say, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Ulster or Munster, because they would, you know, the, the the actual derby matches in Ireland would be very, very hotly consensus, contested, especially Leinster and Munster. <laughs> I know a fair few folk from Cork who are not keen on the West Brits, as they call them. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that would be interesting, but no, Leinster had. I mean, I I, I fully disagreed with Dave Rennie's um, opinion that Leinster should be handed the title because they hadn't earned it. He just wants you to know? get he just wants to get off to Australia as soon as he possibly yeah, he can. He just wants to bugger off as soon as possible. He's yeah, got an eye uh, going. Well, they, well, well, you know, things look all right in Australia at the moment. I'm just going to be over there. Yeah, I, I did find it quite remarkable that somebody who's notoriously competitive, Dave Rennie, would say that, but. Given that the uh, Rugby Australia have recently sacked Raylene Castle, who is a major player and has getting appointed, um, he's possibly concerned about his future job prospects. Mm, yeah, I mean it's it's. I don't realistically. I I don't think that the pro. I I think I don't see the pro for this pro fourteen season ending in the way, in any kind of planned way. I think there might be an argument to say that you, before the start of the whatever the next season starts, whenever that they're able to start it up again, that you have a one-off match maybe against Ember and Leinster just for fun. 
but I can't. I, I just don't see any merit to it because it, because it involves traveling across international borders. It's we're way down the line before you get teams traveling to play each other. Sorry, I'm just in the midst of a sneezing fit there. Um, <laughs> no, uh, th- yeah, there's there's no value to it. Um, the, the season should just be declared null and void um, because there was still so much rugby to play. Um, especially when you get to sort of playoff modes, you, you know, you're talking about one-off rugby. It's not, it's not like a standard league. Like, um, I feel, I, I feel really sorry for Liverpool football fans. You know, Liverpool have been on such a great run, and they were, they were de- basically destined to win the Premier League for the first time in about thirty years, and it's not going to happen. Um, and then, you know, we've discussed the issues with the Scottish Premier League, like bigger or not getting promoted even though they'd won national one at a canter. Um, I don't think you can justify just calling the Pro 14 season over a couple of games or two. Uh, no, I think it's just it should be written off as null and void and then we just start again from when we get to start again. Yeah, I think that's it. it, just, it and I think it's it's way, it's it's so far, it seems like it's going to be so far down the line before you even could could start the Pro 14 again outside of kind of the national borders that it just definitely nobody will care anymore well i mean i know i'm yeah. Ember, Ember fans aside apologies to Ember fans listening i'm sure, I'm sure you care deeply about <laughs> oh, this, not, this not again here's here's us getting accused of glasgow glasgow bias, bias and yeah well, actually, i'm sure Ember fans would like to see the season ended however i think practically that's speaking i think more likely i was saying on twitter i think it's more likely that the sru will have to host some sort of pro games within Scotland, whether that's you distribute the professional players amongst the Super 6 or you just have Glasgow and Ember go at it over a few games, that's going to have to happen before you even get the Pro 14 started up again because you'll be able to play, you would imagine you'll be able to play games domestically before you'll be able to travel to Wales or Ireland to play games. Yeah, that's actually a decent show. What we could get is like a sort of Glasgow Warriors Ayrshire Bulls mix yeah uh, or seeing as Edinburgh got three of the Super 6 teams um, <laughs> well, maybe we'll need to chuck in uh, chuck in like Melrose or the Southern Knights Southern as Knights, called yeah the Southern Knights <laughs> as, they, as they ride in on their horses with flaming torches <laughs> such a worrying name for a team it's a terrible name for a team it's, uh, but you know like the first person that I interviewed as sort of but as you know I've done match sports for the offside line the first person, first player that I interviewed was a guy called Ryan Sweeney who plays for Glasgow Hawks and he had been doing fantastic like Hawks weren't doing well obviously but he was he was a standout performer um and he told me he was getting a contract with the Ayrshire Bulls. He's also in his final year at uni. So you you have to really feel for players and, and young guys like that who are Super 6 and uni, involved at uni. They're, you know, basically their last year has been a, a complete write-off. Yeah. Now here's this guy, like, super excited, sorry for swearing, super excited to, like, be going on training for the, the, the Ayrshire Bulls. And it's like, yeah, I'm signed up now. I'm now a semi-pro rugby player. And now you don't... He doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, and same, I assume a lot of Super 6 players are in the same boat. 
whether they're furloughed or or youngsters trying to make their way through. Well, I just think you um, think of the benefits of of doing that because if you if if you follow the New Zealand model, essentially they've said, well, we're okay, we we're okay to start up professional sport again. There's a benefit to doing it, kind of economically and also socially. So let's just forget the let's forget Super Rugby and just play each other. Yeah, um, but then we, we also we. All- we also have to remember there, and we don't like getting too political on this, but uh, look at the respective leaders of each country and how they dealt with the situation. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, fair enough, like New Zealand has a landmass, I think it's, I actually checked this, New Zealand has a landmass three times the size of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you look at somewhere like Auckland, Auckland, I think only had, last time I'd looked, something like, 15 deaths whereas Glasgow's up over a thousand Mm. Um, so the fact that they took heed of the warnings early doors um, and like I said I don't want to get too political but you know uh, the fact of the matter is that our government has made an absolute disaster of this situation and that is why New Zealand can then restart rugby on Saturday I mean, I think within the first month of New Zealand saying, like, we're having a lockdown, there have been four deaths, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. You know, they've yeah. they've taken advice early doors and said, look, we'll do this. And that's why they can get the game back up and running, yeah. because they've adhered to guidelines. They've they've looked at warnings, which warnings which had been made months, if not years before. I've seen a video of Barack Obama warning about a thing before, worried about a respiratory virus from four years ago saying we need to listen to WHO um, those lessons hadn't been heeded by people in power who are full of arrogance and that's why we're in this current situation yeah and I think and that that's it potentially you you might be in a situation where Ireland could start up rugby before Scotland and Wales you might even be in a situation given the different approaches in the country where competitive support could return to Scotland before it returns to England uh, for example so I think that, that what you would hope and I'm not that there's been no indication that that this is going to happen but it would be nice if they would say something about what their longer term plans or their medium term plans are because the pro, let's face it Pro 14 isn't coming back until you can be in national tra- travel between international borders um, because you've got to get to Italy and you've got to get to South Africa, let alone you know the, the situation in Ireland. Um, so having domestic professional rugby as a kind of holding thing is surely the only sensible option. It would be nice if the SRU would say if that's something they're considering. Yeah, bring back sort of districts. Yeah. Uh, just do, just you know, just because it would be good, like you said, for those young lads that are playing Super Six and have got their contracts. What, what an opportunity to play them alongside, you know, full internationals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, um, you know, give them confidence. It'll give them valuable learning um, experience. Uh, and you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, I think what would be, if it's possible, and if it's affordable. Uh, you know, every player has to get tested before every game. Mm-hmm. A couple of days beforehand, I think. It, like, I think in order to actually get a test result back, it only takes like three or four days. But because of the backlog, it takes a lot longer for you know, Joe Public. Yeah. Um, but if they can say, if they can guarantee these 
40 guys here and these 40 guys here are completely, you know, free of any virus symptoms and we've tested them, get the game back going. Because yeah. like, I am so looking forward to it. On Saturday, I'm going to spend the entire day watching the Bundesliga <laughs> just so I can watch them. Well, they're talking, the SIU, to- the, the SIU are talking about bio-bubbles and, you know, and, you know, setting up situations where it might be potential possible to play um play rugby again it's just that's not going to be the pro 14 i think it's it, yeah. you know and, and they've said well, i think all professional sports teams are saying that whatever they do in terms of testing is going to be done privately because understandably they don't want to put any pressure on on the nhs all the medical stuff you know if, if if a player gets injured it's going to be off to the spy hospital rather than down the local Aye. Um, so there's all that kind of stuff to consider, but I think realistically it's going to have to, you know, you, you, you don't want Glasgow and Edinburgh going into whatever becomes of the Pro 14, you know, lacking match sharpness. I think though on the, on the flip side, um, given the sort of drooling rugby season that we have nowadays, um, I think a lot of players will physically and mentally, especially mentally, feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at someone like Johnny Gray, who's you know over the years has played so many minutes. I mean, twenty fourteen fifteen season, I've, I've spoken about this before. Uh, Glasgow basically had no locks left, so Johnny Gray had to play every week. And you can see him walking out on the pitch. That's a guy who was only like twenty two, twenty three years old, and he was lumbering on there, just looking like he was burst. Yeah. Um. So you know, so for someone like him, you know, he's been playing pro since he was eighteen. Uh, this break might do him good, uh, but like you said, you know, once we actually get back in the nitty gritty of stuff, players will need to be battle hardened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can't just I mean, play the. You're not going to be able to play the autumn tests off the back of a you know five six month rest. No, well, you know, like, well, as we've read in Gregor Townsend's documentary, <laughs> uh, sorry, autobiography um, about such things, you know, when he had such issues, and then we get thrown back in. It's, it's certainly not ideal. No. Um, I feel like we're, we're leading our way. We're, we're, we're slowly creeping towards what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we, we are going to... I think next week, what, what Rory suggested, which is a good one, which is kind of what... It, a few other places have kind of talked about similar things. Is kind of like a rugby reset discussion. You know, we, we've got, like you were saying, that players have got an opportunity to rest, to mentally relax. We've got an opportunity now to look to look at what rugby is and what it might look like in the future. So we're going to, I think next week, the plan is to do a kind of, a bit like a, a fantasy, what do you call it, like a, a kind of fantasy rugby, where we, we're going to dream, say, right, we start with a blank paper, we, we start with uh, a blank piece of paper. Utopian rugby. Yeah, you tell rugby utopia. What does, what, we've got a chance to pause, reflect, what does rugby, what, what could rugby be? What kind of rugby could emerge from this? So we're going to do that next week. So if you've got any suggestions, what changes would you make to rugby? Um, it can be anything, can be um, the laws, it could be um, kind of competition wise, whatever, any ideas you've got, then just get in touch on the blog, scottishrugbyblog.co.uk, uh, Twitter at Cami Black or at Scott Rugby Blog, or email podcast at scottishrugbyblog.co.uk and we'll, we'll pick out some of the best ones there. The main thing this evening then um, is to look at uh, Gregor Townsend's autobiography, Talk of the Toonie 
which uh, is a terrible title for a book, and in the acknowledgments <laughs> uh, was revealed to be the idea of Chris Cusseter. <laughs> See, mate, after to- I only noticed this yesterday. Mine seems to be signed in blue pen, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it's... Greg Atal- Can we Google Greg Townsend's autograph now just to see if it was? Did- Oh, you, did, you just got the. Uh, I got the, the Kindle version. Versions. I've got the yeah. Kindle version because it was um, three. It's three pound forty nine on Kindle at the moment, folks. Um, my what? My hardback copy is eighteen pounds ninety nine. I know. A... So the book itself was released in um, two thousand and seven. It hasn't been updated. I think the copy I've got on Kindle was re released in twenty fifteen. So I assume it was probably just a, that's when it went on um, went on Kindle. Um, Gregor Townsend's uh, signature looks like it's kind of like two. The first one looks like a kind of Grug, and then it's sort of a <laughs> Grug, Grug, Grug Tierney. Looks Grug like. Tony. <laughs> is that what your pen looks like? Yes. Yeah. Well, you've got a signed copy then. Well, yeah, but like a printed signed copy. All right. Um, so it was released in 2007, um, just after he retired. Now, in the, the, interestingly, he said in the acknowledgements, he says he started writing it as almost like a diary in 2003 and then spent a year writing it, um, which must have been during his last season at the Borders, which we more on which later. Um, the, uh, to promote the book, the interesting thing then is to I, I look back at this to see what he'd done at the time to promote the book. And it seems like he, the, he was um, the Guardian's guest writer for the 2007 World Cup for Scotland because he did a he did a five things Scotland must get right before the Italy game and then um, he did another article uh, I think talking about um, what they how, how they should have played against the All Blacks as well there was also which is really random rather than being interviewed by the Independent there was an email interview where they just fired back I don't know whether they sent him a list of questions and emailed them back Um in which he said that he uh, he would pick Chris Patterson over Dan Carter, Johnny Wilkinson as his kicker. That is, but I still thought that was quite funny. Um, as a kicker, yeah, yeah, as a kicker, yeah. Anywhere else on the pitch, no, no. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because that's the way that doing that is how I also found out that there was no ghostwriter for the book at all. That he, this is this is pure, un, well, he must have had an editor, but pretty much pure unfiltered Townsend. Yeah, I'd felt I was I was wondering that myself if he had a ghostwriter because I, I know that in the uh, the Zlatan book that I have, um, was it, he says about Stephen Honcho, a step left, a step right, then I sent him for a hot dog. Um, <laughs> that was that was the journalist who made that up. But Zlatan it? approved. Yeah, Zlatan approved of it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds like the kind of dickhead thing I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so he approved, but yeah, no, um, not fair play to you. Well, this thing. Tony's a, a very eloquent man. Yes, mm. we know we've been to press conferences with him. Yeah. Um. So I can imagine that he would be able to gather his thoughts into a a, a coherent tome. Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, we've we've kind of what we've done is we've got our we've both come up with kind of five things we learned about Gregor Townsend or five things we kind of picked up from the book. So you've got, I mean, we, we don't want to have too many spoilers because you know I, hopefully you'll have read it coming into this, but if if not. Maybe this will inspire you to want to go away and read it. So we don't want to ruin everything. Um, the first thing, I'm kind of picking up on the point you made there about his eloquence, is just how pathologically obsessed he is with rugby. Because 
I, and I think this probably comes down to why it's you can tell it's not ghostwritten because a ghostwriter would have put some personal elements in there, but it's literally from page one right through to the end, everything is rugby. He barely mentions his wife. I think the first he doesn't say how he met her. He just like she just turns it just after a France match. I think it's after the Tooney Flip game. He just said, "Oh, and Claire was there, who I was dating at the time." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." And then, oh, at this point, Claire was up the duff, and I was expecting my first child, who was six, who might have been born in Scotland, but we're not, we weren't sure, depending on what contract I was going to sign. Yeah, and then it just and it just moves on like there's like these little like almost like a sentence he gives to major life events. It's like, and then I got married, <laughs> move, and then he just moves on to talk about a rugby game. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's very stark about how like from you know when he. He asked to join his uh, his older brother's uh, sevens team, his under ten seven team, to the end. It's all just like this is where I went to play rugby. This yeah. is why I went there to play. I mean, fair like he does talk about um, the fact that he's he loves travelling and going visiting new places, and that's why he played in so many different countries. Um, but. It's, I mean, the guy just goes to these places primarily to play rugby. Yeah, it's just an obsession. It's, and he's it's, and he just soaks seems to soak everything up from when, when he gets there. Mm. And yeah, yeah, it's just and it's just it's all about the games he's played, and it's it's written in like really kind of strict chronological order as well. You pick up at any other sporting autobiography, you know, autobiography again, ones that will have been ghostwritten. And and there'll be kind of like a, a shifting narrative through it, so it'll kind of maybe be like more up, like maybe the whole book will be the last about the last season, and it'll you know flash back to points in their career. But this is literally: I was born, I played rugby, <laughs> and then I went, then I went and played for Gala for a bit, and then I was called up for Scotland, and then I went to Australia for a bit, and it's literally just like bang, 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 bang. There's no flitting about at all. It's just absolutely yeah, was... strict. Which I suppose again speaks to him, doesn't it? That a very kind of a very ordered mind. I think as well, like considering that it was written just after he'd retired, it was it was all that he knew, you know, going from turning out for his big brother's under tens team at the age of like was it five or seven he was, yeah, um, up until the very end, um, his whole life has just been rugby. And this is even before we get into his coaching stuff, uh, which is uh, there is a part and he talks about going on to uh, Argentina in 1984 when he said he, he fell out, he basically fell out of love with the game because of a how he'd been treated and how his injuries been treated. Um, but yeah, he, it's like you said, it's just chronological. There's there's no sort of n- waver in the narrative it is just all bang this is what happened i started playing rugby at this age and this is everything that happened from then on but hence. only but only rugby <laughs> this is everything <laughs> happened to me, but only in framing it with yeah. rugby nothing else i you know i got married along the way but i'm going to dedicate a sentence to that and then i'm going to move on now yeah um it's quite interesting as well and i don't think that i think this is probably Every autobiography falls in this trap, and I stopped. I stopped recording after a while because it felt unfair. But there is so much partridesqueness about it as well. 
Like, there's a lot of Alan Partridge moments where I just thought that that it looked like something that would be in I Partridge, which is a fan. If no one's read it, the Alan Partridge autobiography, I Partridge, is is wonderful. The um, follow up Nomad, which is his walking book, is also also very good. But I Partridge is kind of the touchstone of the parody or celebrity autobiography. And uh, there's a few excerpts here. So there's um, this line and so in the same weekend that mount st helens erupted in north america my love affair with the game began (laughs) (laughs) there's also um i have my parents to thank for making me attend the boys brigades this created a foundation that was very worthwhile because of the discipline the bb instilled like going for badges keeping the uniform clean for weekly inspection and working as a team just felt very very alan partridge-esque there was another one which i got i don't have to pick up there um, there was a bit where he talked about being in Argentina and uh, wanting to go and stand out on a balcony like Evita. Yeah, um, because of the Falklands War celebrations. Celebrations, yeah, which felt hugely misjudged. I think he said, um, as well, when they went to South Africa on the Lions too, he said, I was amazed uh, how popular rugby was in South Africa, albeit only amongst the white people. I remember it was the, uh, when he'd... Oh, was it? He come back from playing for Scotland uh, to go back to France, and somebody nicked his BMW. So he went on <laughs> about the BMW for a while. <laughs> then, then they gave me an absolute wreck of a car, which broke down every week. It broke down twice a day. The two other was it? it clearly wasn't a Lexus, was it? No, the clear the, the two other ones were. Um, there's one about I think I can't remember which game it was, but I've picked up the note. Um, it was a game where. Um, must be a Six Nations game because Gavin Hastings broke down in tears during the television interview after the match. This one and many more admirers, and he told the squad the following week he'd received hundreds of letters for support, which even included one from my mum. My mum. <laughs> <laughs> but the best one, the actual peak partridge was he. I think it's early on in his career he gets injured and he gets a tip from a local racehorse trainer that if he go, he should go and like find a cool stream somewhere and just sit in it. Yes. And he said, it was a dark night. I switched on my Walkman to try and think about something other than my freezing legs. I closed my eyes and hummed along with Kylie Minogue. (laughs) (laughs) What what a rock and roll rock. I know, I just can't imagine. Gregor Townsend, Sash. Stark bollock naked, I think he was as well, he said. No, I think he put shorts on, but he he was layered up at the top level. That's right. Um, this was pre-ice baths. Yeah, so sat on a board of bird and listening to Kylie Minogue on his, on his Sony Walkman yeah. cassette. I should, I should be so lucky yeah. Um So yeah, it's just, I think that's what comes out. It's just and, 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 you know, other people have said it, but it really does come through just how obsessed with rugby he is and how, how much it must have just kind of consumed him almost. Yeah, even though he talks about, like, sort of taking a sort of laissez-faire attitude to it um, and that you should enjoy playing rugby rather than think it was a job. Um, it's it's funny things like, like, I've heard people talking about Owen Farrell as being just obsessed with rugby, like players have said that all he talks about is rugby. And and Tony seems the same way, but they just go about it in very different fashions. Mm. Whereas Owen Farrell's just this constant scowling, gritty, brutal northerner Northern Englishman just like, no, I'll play rugby. I like to smash people without me arms. <laughs> Whereas Tony's just a bit more sort of, yeah, I like to play rugby. Uh, you know, I like to flip ball here and there. But, um, 
but he is he is obsessed with the game. He is. I mean, he also seems to really resent. I mean, what a kind of theme throughout the book is how much he really resents being term mercurial. It kind of really yeah. seems to weigh quite heavy on him, and especially that this. He really, really kind of, you can tell, always saw himself as a 10. And I, I don't, like I said, he, at one point he says, I think when he goes to Northampton, he did not he disliked playing outside centre, but it just didn't suit his game. Uh, yeah, because like, he thought about playing centre, and was like, I, just on the dawn of professionalism, he's like, I don't have the physique for it. I wasn't big enough. He'd noticed that it all become a bit more crash ball runner. Um Whereas, you know, obviously you're playing him a lot. He's played hot for Scotland at outside centre rather yeah. than inside. Um, so, you, you know, it's it's sort of the negation of the dual playmaker role, which is now prevalent, of the 10-12 axis being good passers uh, and just having him as a, as a running player. Uh, even though, he, you know, obviously, he, 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 a lot of time in the, the book, I noticed he criticises his own kicking game. Um, he, he constantly sort of goes on about his kicking game like uh, you know, I felt like I passed well I tackled well but my kicking game wasn't up to scratch um, yeah because it's the, I mean it seems to be like the, it's the 97 lines that he really hits his stride but then he gets injured mm. and then it's this idea that not you know, McGeekin, Ian McGeekin kind of he's he's looking to move to Cardiff because he has, what I love about it is he gets, he gets Northampton to put a term in his contract that says he can leave them at any at the end of any season, so long as it's not to another English club. And he said the reason he insisted that that clause went in there is so he could go back and play for Gala. Yeah. <laughs> but things yeah. had moved on. Obviously, things had moved on, and that wasn't really an option for him at that point. But it's just this idea that he'd, he'd sign his professional contract and go, do you know what? At any point, I might want to go back and play for Gala, so let's put this clause in the contract. <laughs> yeah, certainly... Um... I went Bath, like the the whole thing when Clive. Uh, there's a whole transcript on it of a letter that Clive Woodward sent to him, mm. saying like, "I think you would thrive here in these conditions." Um, and even back then, that like Keith Barwell, who was the uh, managing director of Northampton, he said, "You know what? If you want to sign Gregor Townsend, it's going to cost you five hundred thousand pounds." <laughs> Which uh, I mean. The first time I'd heard that transfer barrier being broken was when George North signed for the Saints. Hmm. Uh, and that was nearly, was it nearly 15 years later? Hmm. Nearly 20 even, actually. Um, so, I mean, the man was in high demand because he was obviously a class A player. But it was he he wanted to play 10. And Geetje told him, when he turned at Bath and Cardiff for after, because uh, Gregor later goes on to say, and I'm sorry if this ruins one of your later points, um, but Gregor said that his favourite halfback partner of all time is Rob Howley. Mm, <laughs> rather, yeah. rather ironically, seeing as that uh, Warren Gatlin then said, you can be his assistant on a Lions tour, <laughs> rather than take the top coat job at Scotland if you wish. So yeah, you can tell why Gregor told him to get to. Um, but I mean, Townsend was—he was a man in demand, and he so wanted to play at ten. But Northampton, even Geach promised him that he could play at ten. The likes of Paul Grayson, Matt Dawson, and Tim Rodber had suggested that that wasn't where they wanted him to play for the Saints. Yeah. 
which uh, I find kind of well when you find it when he goes to France, it's, it's a very much different atmosphere regarding coaching culture and what have. Yeah, what have you? It's strange, isn't it? It's just that I mean the the, the coaching thing's interesting because there, there was a couple of um, there was one point early on. And I don't know. Is, is one <laughs> the similarities and parallels with 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 the uh, I don't know the sort of semi incumbent of the town shirt currently ensconced in France <laughs> are quite striking at points. But I mean, I think that the rugby going professional thing is really interesting in the book just because it's, and this was kind of the second point I'd picked up on, because it's almost like it's proper Wild West stuff. Because he, you know, he, you know, Gavin Hastings pulling him in saying, we'll pay you £100,000 to play in this world league that's being set up by some rich millionaire. And Gregor Townsend signing a contract that says, yeah, but only if 30 of other Scottish internationals sign up too. Yeah, and as long as it's some of the youngsters like Brian Redpath and people are coming through at his age grade as well. Yeah, and because it's like we're starting to get something exciting going. That's I mean that's um, the other thing he's, he's kind of a, a lot of the the steps of the way he's he's really savvy with stuff like that because you can't imagine he would have had an agent for a lot of these negotiations. You know things like putting the clause in the contract that he can leave at the end of any season for, with Northampton to a non English club. Um, you know, getting the clause put in the Gavin Hastings contract that says we'll own, you know, you you'll only commit to this if we get this percentage of players. These things, he does almost have this foresight to to kind of see the have a kind of almost like you know kind of see see into the future and the possibilities. It's not just been a case of that's a lot of money. I'll take it. It was uh, what I found quite telling was that he'd um, he'd agreed to. You know, he'd gone to Cardiff and spoken to Cardiff um, and said, yeah, I'll, go, I'll come and play for you because you, you've said I'll play at 10 and I'll have Rob Howley beside me. But then on the way back, he's you know he gets a phone call from Keach and changes his mind halfway through it. Um, and that's, that, that's at that point he says, I'll never go into negotiations again without an agent. <laughs> um, because, you know, he, he, he did, you can tell that he felt Bad about saying yes, I will go and play for Cardiff because it would. I mean, at this point, he would have been about 23, 23 year old. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I get to go and play with like my favourite number nine I've ever played with. Um, but then this this loyalty he feels to Northampton and to Geach in particular, that kind of overrides him. And it's interesting uh, he says he did because they offered to put in his contract that you'll only be play with they'll only select him at ten. But he yeah. says no, I don't want that because you know, kind of, you know, it's not. He didn't want that. That's not the reason he was doing it. Kind of, it yeah. wasn't an ego thing. It was just that's where he wanted to play. Yeah, but then also you see the sort of, in contrast, you see the ego and what I would just classify as sheer arrogance of the likes of Matt Dawson, Tim Rodburn, Phil Grayson saying, "No, nah, he doesn't get to make that decision." Yeah. Because um, they're part of an established sort of players group, uh, and I mean the way that um, uh, Tim Rodber was playing at eight for the Lions and at eight at Northampton alongside him, he's like, oh, I- I've never seen you play as a ten like you did in South Africa. It's like, well, that's because you didn't give me the chance. And uh, I think Tim Rodber and Matt Dawson come off pretty badly. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't necessarily criticise him directly. Well, well no, because I think he, he kind of gets. He seems to get on with Matt Dawson particularly. I don't. Tim Rodberg yeah. comes off quite. I don't. Tim Rodberg's 
we'll come on to Gregor Townsend list later on, who doesn't quite make the list, but he's close <laughs> to it. And again, it probably harks back to a time when, because it's the early days of professionalism, you've still got players on the selection committee at clubs. It's not, you know, it's not the kind of modern setup where, where the coach picks the club. You've still got almost like a panel of selectors picking the team, which involves the team itself picking the team. And you wouldn't, I don't, I can't think of anywhere that that would happen now. And even back I'll in think cricket, maybe yeah, well, cricket, but it, it wouldn't happen in rugby now. I mean, even in, in for Scotland games, you know, that he's talking about the selectors being in. So it's not just you know Jim Telford and McGee can pick the team. It's the selectors. It's it's some sort of committee. Yes, some of whom didn't approve of his um, type of trainers and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that was was that the I, now I can't remember. Was this before the France Tooney Flip game where he they had it? Uh, it's before a France yeah, game, it, isn't it? Yeah, he'd signed on with Reebok, and uh, but the SRU had signed up with Nike. Yep, and he'd forgot to put put his Nike trainers in the bag. Yeah, uh, I, I have it written there in my notes here. I can't remember who it was. It was a team uh, manager, whoever the team manager was at the time. Oh, it's uh, Duncan Patterson. Right. Yeah, and so to the end of that sort of paragraph, we're saying sometimes the custodians of the game were more demanding in the amateur days than they were in the professional. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just because of because they made him go, they made him go and do the pre-match like the captain's run at the in in France in his kilt shoes. Yeah, because that's all he had. All he had was his Reebok Sannies and his uh, kilt shoes. It's yep. like, oh, I've got kilt shoes. It's like, well, go put your kilt shoes on. He also had to borrow a like pair a of hoop. boots. He also had to borrow a pair of boots from Kenny Milne before one game because he'd forgotten his, hadn't he? <laughs> yeah, or he yeah, got the wrong studs. Size. <laughs> yeah, he said he was trying to change the studs and he st- snapped the the, uh, the input on the studs because um, it was a muddy pitch. They'd all put on long studs and he's just the short ones. So he's like, oh, he's like, oh, because I was a student. Give me some of those. He's like, I wasn't adversely knocking back free stuff. It's like, yeah, give me free studs. Oh no, <laughs> I broke the ball. It's <laughs> uh, now like you'll get a football player or rugby player will turn up with like probably four or five boots, like all paid for by Adidas at two hundred and fifty quid a pop. Yep. You know, it's uh, it's madness. Yeah. What was your part? Because I've, I've done my first. Two. What, what what did you pick up from? Um. Um, well, one of the main things that I picked up on was um, his relationship with John Leslie. Mm. Now, John Leslie, uh, I mean, he had a pretty short career for Scotland, but it was a bloody impactful one because he, he was a fantastic player. Um, I, I see a lot of the way that Sam Johnson plays the game. I see a lot of that, mm. like, coming from John Leslie, that, you know, that, not just the fact that they're from the southern hemisphere, but they're hard tackling, they run hard, and uh, you know they, they're also good distributors of the ball. Um, and uh, I mean, like Tunzend talks about the fact that nobody had stood up to Jim Telfer or Geach at any stage, but then John Leslie comes in and he starts mouthing off. So they're kind of like, actually, yeah, we agree with him. Yeah, we're on his side. But then it's when uh, John Leslie is um, appointed captain. Um, now, it annoyed Townsend because he was like, "Yeah, he's he's a stubborn guy, and he, you know, he and 
I thought like, Townsend agreed with him. He was like, yes, this is how we should be playing. We should be playing a more attacking wide game. But then it, what it just recalled to me was this previous um, thing that uh, Ilted had said on the podcast about how Fern Russell was about to be captain. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, like Hoggy, Hoggy seems like more of a yes man than Finn. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yep. Um, whereas you know where whereas Tooney in this area he, he's talking about he's he's basically he's Finn Russell, you know, or or John Leslie's Finn Russell and he's just like going yeah I agree with this dude. Uh, but then as his coaching career's go on, you you kind of see the dichotomy between what Townsend thought as as a player what what should be happening with the coaches. As to what's opposed to what he has he has done as a coach, in particular with the criticisms um, thrown at him after the World Cup. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you would have thought if he if if he's been in a situation where coaches that he admires and respects, because you know there, you can tell there's a lot of admiration for Telfer and Geach in the book. If he's seen them, kind of take somebody that. Is questioning their authority and questioning the you know their their tactics and 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 making them captain or almost bringing them on board saying okay then you've got all these ideas you come in and be captain you challenge us and let's make that a positive thing. If he's if he's seen that work, then it, it and some of it because there's another bit we'll come on to in a minute. But there are things in the book you think. God, you know, using your own experience and the things that you have gone through in your own life, why did the Finn Russell thing end up the way it did? Because looking at his own experience of dealing with coaches, looking at things that have happened around him that he obviously kind of sees as being good things, it's it almost makes it more baffling as to why the Finn Russell thing ended up like it did. Yeah, I mean, like. That time Scotland went, Scotland were loath to play him at ten because he wanted the more controlled game of uh, Craig Chalmers. Mm. Um, but we don't have that option of a sort of uh, say, let's say it's a sixth no Gary example, right? Uh, Finn Russell and Adam Hastings are both mad running tens, and they are the best tens we've had since Craig Chalmers. Uh, without a shadow of doubt, as far as I'm concerned, you know, everyone we've had in between, uh, and I apologise to Phil Godwin and all that, all, the, all <laughs> that kind of help. But let's be honest, your your year has coincided with a massive downturn in Scottish rugby forces. Dan Park was, uh, you know, he was he was a boring ten, um, and that's something that Tudy. You know, as he goes on in many stages in his book to say about how he likes to play a wide attacking game off playing the 10 channel and how he liked playing in, as number 10 because it made him the decision maker. He thrived on that uh, that extra pressure, as does someone like Finn Russell. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it causes, causes further bafflement to how they could fall out. Yeah, I mean, um, th- there was one point where... Um... He gets Townsend gets really heavily criticised in Argentina by the coach at the time. However, I've had to write down who it was because uh, yeah. uh, he's on he's on Gregor Townsend's list. Dougie Morgan, yeah, basically went yeah. to the press and said that, and, and said Gregor Townsend had a shocker. 
and he said, and, and and then comes up and says to Gregor Townsend, "I've just I've just told the press you had a shocker," and then walks off. And this really yeah. really winds Townsend up. He said. There should be no scenario that justifies publicly hanging a player out to dry in what I believe is the ultimate team game. Coaches who do this deflect the criticism away from themselves and the team, whether or not that is their intention. There's a great great quote by an American football coach, Bear Bryant, who said, If anything goes bad, I did it. If anything goes good, we did it. If anything goes really, really good, congratulations, congratulations. guys. You, you, did, you it. did it. Which again, you know, like, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't the possibility that Gregor Townsend has has learned since writing this book and has has changed his position on on life or his philosophy and maybe even being in position of a coach makes him have to look at the world a little bit differently. But again, coming back to his own experiences, the way that he, having been hung out himself to dry on a number of occasions throughout his career, it then is all the more baffling that that's where we ended up in the Six Nations. I don't think Gregor's never called out, called someone out directly like that. I mean, for um, who was it? Who was it said it again? I've got the name on my website, on my notes here. Uh, but it, regardless of that, right? You should not say about like, he was twenty-one years old at the time. Mm. You should not publicly criticise a man before you've spoken to him personally. Right, regardless of anything. I don't think you should publicly criticise someone. And and particularly as he said he didn't think he played that badly, but he ended up getting the brunt of it. And for a for a twenty one year old to be hit with those kind of slaggings and to be told like to directly be told straight after was like, Oh by the way, I've just slated you to the press <laughs> and he's he initially he's thinking, Are you are you taking a piss? Have you actually done that? Then he finds out he has he's been slammed by one of his mentors, one of his coaches, uh, publicly and shamelessly, without any chance of cutting back. Or if he does cut back, he's going to get cut from the squad. I think that's a really, really crappy thing to do. Yeah, it's such a, it's it's not good man management at all. And you know, like Jim Telfer, like you know, Jim Telfer's sort of notorious as being a a hard taskmaster. I think, is this one of the points you were wanting to touch on? Well, I was going to say, it's just that there's the Jim Telfer thing, isn't it? Because immediately after that, and it's a side that isn't talked about Jim Telfer much. He, he's Jim Telfer's out in Argentina. He's the director of rugby at the time for the, the SRU. So it's a salary position. So he's not allowed, under the professionalism rules, he's not actually allowed to co- do any coaching. But Townsend talks, talks about, he comes out and talks him up to the press. He's really positive about him. And then he stays behind after the team run and does some extra work with him. And talks to him just really kind of like straight and gently, doesn't shout at him. He said he, he's quite surprised. is quite surprised that this happens, and it's it's another side to tell for that we don't hear much about that yeah, well, he is remember, able to do that. I remember after the um, you know after the Grand Slam podcast, you did be Tom English on it, and we talked. Uh, he talked about Jim Telfer being one of these guys who scared people into being good. Um, and then I think there was some Twitter comeback, and there was a, a comment I'd replied to on the blog itself. Whereas, you know, we'd been kind of eulogising, or he, this person thought we were eulogising Jim Telfer's no nonsense, give everyone a bollocking approach. Um, but I was like, well, thing is, times have changed. And not only that, but I, I imagine that Jim Telfer would be savvy enough 
to know that sometimes people need a rocket up the arse. Sometimes people just need a, a bit of a hug. Uh, and that's what Jim Telfer has proven that he can, he's capable of doing. Um, both in that incident and... Uh, where is it? Uh, right, I've got it here. Uh, Jim has a brilliant rugby mind and has always been a totally passionate, enthusiastic coach. There are some who didn't appreciate his abrasive style, but he has a charm and an honest manner and it makes you want to open up to him. That's thing, like, you know, if... If Jim Telfer can stand in front of a group of men and just rip them to shreds, just say, you've not done your effing job, but big mad Uncle Jim, as, as you had your little call for a while. <laughs> but then he would, he'd also be savvy enough to know that, you know what, this, this is the kind of guy that doesn't need a bollocking. This is a guy I don't want to shout at. This is a guy I need to encourage and say, tell you what, you are the future. You you've got so much talent. As we know, Townsend has. Like Townsend is one of the best players I've seen play for Scotland. Yeah, um, I think that's the thing, and that's the thing in 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 the in the book, especially with the ninety-seven Lions thing. Is he he says you know Townsend's obviously playing with English players at that point in Northampton. And they're all saying we're not going to take it from Telford. We know what his reputation is. We're not, you know, he's not going to shout at us and belittle us in the same way. And Townsend said, "Well, they, they turn up, and it's that's not the way he does it." And I think it shows we, we were kind of talking. I think in the Grand that Grand Slam podcast about how how Telford himself adapted his coaching style. So what worked in nineteen ninety, he realized wouldn't work in ninety seven in the Lions too. He realized probably when he went out to Argentina. You know, and 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 saw that Gregor Townsend's getting was getting a hard time as a young player, and you know, kind of put his arm around him. It's it's a side you don't often hear about, but but I think it goes to show what actually what what a great coach Telfer is because he's more adaptable, I think, than people have have realised. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we all know him as the sort of the, the sort of Alex Ferguson hair dryer treatment. But then you know that that uh, the speech for the Lions game, you know the this is your Everest speech, that's all done very calmly and contained and slowly, just sort of like look lads, I've I've been in a situation you were in, this is how we go about this, and it's you know it's it's a speech that has been viewed millions of times on YouTube, because um, it's, it's very powerful, you know it gets the point across, and. It proves how savvy and clever as a tactician and man manager that Jim Telfer was. Yeah, well, we, Alan McDonald, friend of the podcast, had got in touch to say that we should look at living with the, the ninety-seven living with the Lions um, film, and I'm tempted. I think we should do it actually because just from the point of view of it being Geach and Telfer, and just from the point of view of that, you know, the Everest, the speeches and the preparation for it, because. Certainly in Townsend's book, the Lions chapter is really interesting, just in terms of their preparations and how meticulously, how meticulously they planned everything, and even the speeches they gave. You know, I'm saying that they obviously were rehearsing this stuff beforehand. They knew exactly what they were going to say when they were going to say it. So I think that might be something. It's on Amazon Prime free at the minute. I think so. We might go on, or you can rent it quite cheaply. So we might we might consider that for a future podcast. And um, what was what was your next your next talking point then? Uh, where, have, where have we gone? Uh, I've gone. Oh man, sorry, I'm looking through our messages. I've kind of mixed them up. Uh, John Leslie. 
sorry, I've kind of. No, that's fine. Well, I've got I've got Gregor Townsend. I've got Gregor Townsend's enemy list as my next one. <laughs> yes, yes. Because that's one thing is you just made the list. You just made the list. There's, there's at least there's three people that come out of this um, as being on Gregor Townsend's list. It's, again, it harks back to the Alan Partridge thing, where Alan Partridge constantly kind of like says, "But I had the last laugh." Of course, I had the last laugh. Uh, Craig Chalmers does not like Craig Chalmers at all. I obviously played with him on the field, but there's there's a couple there's, of th- there's there's a couple of moments later where it's like when Chalmers gets put at, put back in at number ten, he's like, yeah, I could understand it, but the fact that Chalmers, while while still an active player, wrote a Sunday Post column criticising a fellow professional and teammate. Yeah, I mean that just singles Craig Chalmers out as being a bit of a f- yeah, and nearly swore there. Yeah, <laughs> but but it, it doesn't speak highly of Chalmers, does it? Particularly, no, no, it's awful. You, you don't, know. you don't, you don't mouth off about a fellow teammate and a shoddy Sunday newspaper. Yeah, and it comes, his name comes up. I think he obviously plays alongside him, but he doesn't talk about him outside of playing with him in games again much. Yeah. Um. So the, clearly, there is still a lingering. Uh, Resentment certainly two that when the book was written, certainly. I don't know if things have been you, made up since. You would probably be best place. Is it is it a borders thing? Is it a... It's Melrose oh it's Mel, must be Melrose Gala. Ah, yeah, yeah. There'll be that as well. Cause he because he talks about him early in the book because when he starts playing for Gala, Chick yeah. uh, Chalmers is is ten at Melrose and ten for Scotland. And he he takes great delight in saying that he gets one over on him a couple of times as a youngster. <laughs> um which and then I'm like going, oh, okay, that kind of that show it's a bit, a bit arrogant. And then later on when you find out that Chalmers later slagged him off in a national paper whilst still being a teammate, you're like, ah, that's why that's why earlier on in the book he's so pleased to have got one over on him. Um Dougie Morgan doesn't like Dougie Morgan. They kind of no. says early on in the book, you say after the Argentina incident, says, "Oh, he wrote to me when I retired, and it was a nice letter." But then later on in the book, kind of brings up some other kind of spats they've had over the years. <laughs> um, and of course, Matt Williams mm. has no well, time at all for Matt Williams. Well, that is uh, what have I put in my notes here? Uh, yeah, I've just said it's absolutely ghastly treatment. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's horrendous. It's like, oh, it's got, oh, hi, mate. Do you want to retire so I don't have to make you retire? <laughs> no. No, I'd, I'd quite like to be playing for Scotland, thanks. It's like, uh, well, that's going to make it awkward for me, mate, because I'm going to drop you. Sipping a cup of coffee like Gary Cole in office space, like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> no, it's, it's just, oh, it's it's awful. It's like, it's like oh, yeah, I'm going to put you in the training squad. But you've got no chance of playing. Don't even turn uh, up. Does he say you might as well not turn up? Yeah, he says, yeah, you're not going to be with the training squad. Like, I'll put you in the 40-man squad, but you're not actually going to, yeah, don't show up to training sessions. Yeah, It's just absolutely disgraceful treatment. Well, um, what's then interesting later on is kind of, uh, it's a bit through great teeth. It was like when, when Frank Haddon gets in touch with him when, he, when he's back in the, when Townsend starts playing back again for the borders and says, would you consider coming out of retirement? And Townsend's injured at the time. And he he can say he's in two minds about whether he actually would. And he's pretty much saying, I know there's no chance this is going to happen, but they want to do it for PR reasons, just to name me as the unavailable player, just to get some yeah. good PR out of it. And he doesn't seem entirely happy. He kind of knows what's going on, but he doesn't seem entirely happy about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just one of the 
myriad of things we can criticize the SRU about, which yeah. Gregor does quite frequently. With with re- and with relish. I mean, the 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 decision to take an early one, I think, is a decision not to stage the international le- Scottish international leg of the sevens in Melrose. Yep. Most upset about that. He has yep. a dig at the All Blacks as well for not touring the uh, Pacific he has, Islands. He's, he he loves the Pacific Islands. He does. He has a couple of digs at the uh, the All Blacks regarding that. And um, obviously, this has resurfaced what with um, you know the Broadway chairman instance. Um, uh, you know who I despise more than anyone in Broadway at the moment is Brett Empey. Yep. He is an absolute arse. He just, like, during the World Cup, he was like, oh, you know, you've got uh, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland stealing all the southern, famous, uh, the Pacific Island players. Name me one Pacific Island player that has turned out for Scotland, mate. <laughs> no, I mean, we've had a... Oh, let's see. Um, th- there's a lad that played the Sevens for a while, right? Other than that, we don't. Right? And it, when, uh, when a Pacifica plays for a, a Scottish team like uh, Nico or Leone Nakarawa, they have said nothing but nice things about how they've been treated. And and the game right. time, and the fact, pretty much they're treated like Scottish internationals. Their game time is managed in the same way as Scottish internationals are. So they know. I mean, that's yep. pretty much the reason Nico said he came back to Scotland because he knew he would be looked after. Yep. There would there would be no pressure on him not to play international rugby. They were quite happy for him to do it. He'd have his game time managed. What particularly bothers my piss is I don't know if it was Brett MP at the time, but see when uh his name Brad Shields said he was gonna like when he got picked for England squad, um he's super rugby contract running out. So it's like, right, once my super rugby contract runs out, I'll move to England, I can play for England, I've got English family. And they started giving it the oh but your super rugby contract supersedes anything else. You know, we've always been dead good about releasing island players. Pacific Island players for it. So what what makes Brad Shields different from a Pacific Island player? The fact is he was getting picked during a you know a window, one of the IRB windows for playing international rugby. Mm-hmm. Don't try and score social justice warrior points by going oh but we release the Pacificas. It's like no, you have to. You're obliged to by the rules of the IRB. And then you dig your heels in about somebody who's never going to make you a raw black squad. You're just doing it to be arseholes. Right, and then you can pound that by mouthing off about how Scotland, Ireland, Wales are stealing Pacifica players. Um, Townsend makes a, a comment about uh, like, now a, a lot of the Pacifica guys or people of Pacifica heritage who play for the All Blacks are born in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. There is no, there's no denying about that, but that's because of you know economic reasons. You know, it's like standard diaspora of Scots moving to England or. Or even New Zealand, you know, it's it's where the money was, it's where the jobs were. But the fact of the matter is, you can't then go and criticise a nation to saying, "Oh, but you're picking people of this heritage." I mean, I mean, look at the All Blacks. How many players of Scottish heritage have they got? How many people of Irish heritage have they got? You know, it's just going back more and more generations. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 blatant poaching. Oh, so Richie, there was, just, a, there was a, a viral video of Richie McCaw playing bagpipes going around the other day. I mean, he was playing them I absolutely. It was awful. People said, "Is there anything I Richie don't... McCaw can't do?" It's like, well, play the bagpipes for one because it's absolutely dreadful. No, I bet. I, I bet it was better than me. But I mean, Richie McCaw, like, sorry, flight commander Richie, Richie McCaw, McCaw yeah. whatever his bloody name is. Uh, 
uh, where he's he's just a colossus of a man. He 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 upsets me. I hate him. He's so good at everything. Um, but yeah, for someone apart like Brett, from apart from obviously apart from podcasting, there's um, Lee McKenzie's doing a podcast with Dan Carter at the moment, and I think the problem with Dan Carter and Richie McCall is because the way they lived their lives, because it was so... It's a bit like Gregor Townsend in a way. Everything's about the rugby to the exclusion, almost to the exclusion of all else. I think particularly with Richie McCaw, because I don't think he actually had a, a romantic relationship until he retired from rugby. Um, <laughs> I, it's genuinely true. Things is so all-consuming. They they had this little... It was like an, a kind of clip of Richie McCaw, Dan Carter and, and Lee McKenzie talking... And this was obviously supposed to be the big funny bit in the in the podcast, but it just showed how dull Dan Carr and Richie McCaw are. After the field. It's just like, well, you know, I think she just said, oh, what was the funniest thing that happened on tour? And it was just basically Dan Carr saying, uh, oh, uh, Richie, mate, do you remember the ice cream incident? You went, oh, yeah, I couldn't get some ice cream once. And uh, yeah, I like my ice cream. So I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty mad. Pretty mad at that, and then that guy was like, "Yeah, good times, mate." <laughs> that was that was their that was their wild tour stories. They couldn't get some ice cream, and Richie McCall got a little bit angry with the tour manager because he really likes ice cream. That was it. <laughs> that was the anecdote. It was not like you know, oh, we all went, I got drunk one night, and it was really good fun. It was like, no, I I, I got angry because I couldn't get my ice cream. It's like uh, Jim Jeffries, the Australian stand-up comic. He says, "I hate people who have never been drunk because, like, all your stories end with." And then I went home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the last thing I had is the SRU because it, at the end of the book he talks about he kind of has a it's called the State of Union I think he calls it and he talks about rugby union in general. But there's a lot of digs at the SRU and he, he's absolutely furious that they've got rid of the borders. Um, yeah, and I, I would say rightly so, because um, that is the hotbed, or certainly was the hotbed. Um, you know, now seeing as well, there's only one Super Six team in the borders yep. with the, the Southern Clue Clan Knights. Um, <laughs> and it's Melrose, so they're not really the borders. No, it's, it's yeah, there's, I mean, there's, a, there's a whole number of paragraphs related about how the SRU have made a shambles of professionalism, as, as we have said for quite some time. And then, um, you know, once it kind of does get sorted, you know, um, they may end up with stuff like Mark Dawson sacking Finn Russell Star for nothing, taking loads of money, and mm. what have you. But obviously, we don't want to go too deep into that. We'll, no, uh, we but just, it's, it, it's we'll just interesting. We'll just let you read the Dave Barnes offside lane article because we don't want to get our last pass taken from us no. if we want to go to a Scotland game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because it's the um, the Jim Telford quote he pulls out, which is obviously supportive of, in which uh, he accuses, um, he says that the borders has no longer has any influence because of the Embra Glasgow Mafia that now exists at board level. The whole yeah, of Scottish rugby that. is driven by the central belt and very few people on the board have any experience of being involved in professional rugby. The borders will become a dust bowl. Yeah, I um the Edinburgh Glasgow Mafia. I don't I don't really I didn't get that. Edinburgh. No, I just like I liked it. <laughs> I liked that Edinburgh no, of the uh, Glasgow <laughs> Mafia being involved in yeah. Scottish rugby. I can see drug dealing and stuff. You know, we don't. (laughs) Yeah, I think the interesting. It's. I mean, uh, what's interesting is that 
nobody was saying it at the time, but it's obviously all to do with markets. I mean, Townsend's talking about the fact that they got, you know, they did get reasonable crowds at the borders, but they weren't, it's not got the same market as Glasgow, potential market as Glasgow. But like he was saying, they, they, you know, they, they re, nobody was willing to say that up front. So the reasons they got were fairly spurious. So there's a hole in the budget, and then when the report comes out, that hole somehow been mad, you know, miraculously fixed and stuff like that. It's all you read it and you think I'm not really entirely sure what's changed. Um, I mean, the, the guy that I've been sat beside for seven years at the Warriors since I've had a prison ticket. He said they used to go to Hugh and Dune when it was like 40 people in their dug. Um, so, you know, this, it's the, the advent of professionalism, as we know, has been handled terribly and the marketing has been absolutely god-awful. Uh, now most of the marketing team or PR team seem to spend most of their time just wondering or, or being terrified about what Mark Dodson said recently. Um, so yeah, but we're not selling the game well enough, you know, like Glasgow, like because of Glasgow's success over the last five years, numbers have risen remarkably, and we're now too big for the stadium we play in. Sorry, I, I say the stadium, I mean the the leisure 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 complex. Yeah, the jumped up athletics track with uh, with oh, it's, it's an absolutely terrible. I will say this. I will. To be fair, Warriors have have. I think probably because they are, and we said this. I think probably because they they are, they're not based in Murrayfield, so they have they have a little. They seem to operate with much more autonomy than Ember do, and they've always done more than Ember to. Well, they've always seemed to work harder than Ember, and I think that's paid off for them. I think in the from a PR point of view at Glasgow and from the stuff that they do, you know, they were the first ones to come out with a podcast. They were the what they, you know, they've always their video and their, you know, social media stuff has always been ahead of the curve. Certainly in terms of the main Scotland stuff and the Embra stuff, I think probably they've had that autonomy because they are separate, and that's probably played a bit of a part in building it up. I think the success of the team is one thing, but yeah, I think the I think one of the, the unheralded stars of the SRU over the last 15, 20 years is Sean Lennon, mm. um, who has done so much not only for Glasgow, but uh, you know, there's uh, one of the pictures in this uh, Tony uh, autobiography is uh, Sean Lennon giving Tony his, uh, was it his schoolboy shirt to, yeah. to play for Glasgow. Um, uh, Lennon has done great things, but sort of behind the scenes. Uh, he's women's coach for a while as well. Um, yeah, he's he's done such great things, like unheralded things over the last twelve, fifteen years. I see him at Super Six games all the time. Um, and he's and also he's, he, he's he, a real driving force, and also a proper rugby man. And he's really took. To, uh, he, he kind of seems to take talent. He, he didn't talk about him that much, but he did take him under his wing a little bit. He kind of talk talks early on about being a young player and coming up against him, and and Lenin really goading him during the game but almost in a way of kind of trying to drive him on as well at the same time it's quite I can't remember I can't remember the story exactly but he kind of says that Lenin's kind of trying to force him to do stuff yeah, but you, you kind of almost get the sense that he's almost putting him under that pressure to kind of 
make towns yeah. get better town you know get towns in to be better than he is yeah it's uh it's goading with the uh with the aim of improving him as a player because he knows that townsend can take it mentally and that's one thing that you know you read about uh you know guy Towns is a very mentally strong person mm. uh i can't mind what the phrase is but something like you know uh you know i take rugby seriously but i take life more seriously yeah you know, it's just, well, it's that 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 part. I think the 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 big thing that struck for me just, I mean, he he treats, and this kind of comes down to I think probably the seriousness of Gregor Town that underlines everything with with Gregor Townsend, which is a good you know it's a good thing. How, the the fact that he, the sense you get is Gregor Townsend was essentially Scotland's first professional rugby player before professionalism was even a thing. The fact that when he got injured before the 95 World Cup. His first thought was obviously disappointment then, but then, like he says, in the taxi home, he's thinking about what he's going to do next and what how he's going to recover from that. And that's so ahead of the... I mean, that's the kind of stuff that sports psychologists are working on with players now. But to do that kind of pre-95 in the amateur era when you didn't even have sports psychologists, I kind of just think that it shows how ahead Townsend is sometimes with his thinking. It's maybe I don't know again, it's probably like with his with his career, it's sometimes the execution that lets him down. Yeah, you know, he, he does talk about um having a sports psychologist come in, uh Dr. Richard Cox, mm. uh, for a brief brief point. Um but these are set disparate kind of times. Um and like like we've always discussed, uh, you know, we're kinda of baffled that Scotland don't have a full time Sort of psychological coach or somebody who can who can fill that role because they all have about it for years, uh, and so there's a point where Townsend talks about um, getting criticised. It's like it's not about you know I can get I can, I'll take criticism, but if it's constructive, if I'm just getting slammed, it's not going to help me or anyone else. Uh, and Jason O'Halloran has said the same thing about um, Scottish players last year when he was. Uh, with the Warriors um, that Scottish players don't seem to be able to take con- constructive criticism mm. they just kind of want to be pandered to if you're a good player you get let away with murder and I've heard this from like further in leagues as well uh, a guy that I know plays for Sterling he said he was training with Super 6 and he, t- he had the temerity to uh, to slam somebody during, during, during a tackle practice and this guy took umbrage to it and Pete Horn, Pete Horn was coaching at the time apparently Pete Horn was doing assistant coaching work at Sterling and he said no you did nothing wrong this is kind of this is kind of game intensity we need to show these guys your tackle was perfect him taking the hump is just him being an arsehole basically yeah. um, and so it is this kind of we need to stop mod- molly coddling you know the, there's it almost sounds like a bit of a hypocrisy for us to say, uh, you know, Jim Telfer can go and mouth off, blah, blah, blah. But he's doing it because he knows, he does it to guys who knows he can take it. Mm. But then if it's someone like Townsend, arm around the shoulder, sort of, all right, son, this is how we do this. Because he saw the talent and he knew this guy was going to be a great. Yeah. And he knew how to deal with ta- He knew what Townsend needed. Townsend, what you... you... In the book, Townsend isn't someone, I think he probably accepts himself, Townsend isn't someone that responds well to the hairdryer treatment. Townsend is a arm around the shawl. 
shoulder come on son let's work together on making things better that's why he said you know he worked well with Roy Laidlaw when Roy Laidlaw comes in at Scotland he had a good relationship with Geach because Geach kind of treated him as a as a as a grown up and had level conversations with him but I think and again it comes back to the Telfer thing is Jim Telfer understood the psychology of players he understood the guys that he could wind up and take to the limit and he understood the guys there were guys that he couldn't do that to because they, they weren't up to it yeah, and then you hear about um, Finn's time in France, particularly his first um, his first sojourn there, <laughs> where his coach would um, actively encourage violence in the dressing room. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it's quite strange to read about the um, the way that Townsend was sort of raised in French rugby, as opposed to what you hear about Finn mm. being in France, where it's like, all oh, right, you want to order some bottles of wine from the cellar? Have a croissant. <laughs> You and you and Simon Zebo, oh here you go. Here's some here's some croissant pal chocolat. Good yeah. daft. Yeah. <laughs> nutrition our nutrition go and see our nutritionist over there. He's the fifteen stone guy sat in the corner <laughs> ch- chomping his way through a baguette. I think it was he's staying at a hotel and this uh, was it Madame Esley. it's like she'd be offended if he if he wouldn't eat three meals a day at the hotel. <laughs> oh, it's mad. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting book. Go go and, go and grab a copy. Three pound fifty on Kindle at the minute. Um, I think there's lots of copies on Amazon second hand, and I think you can still buy it. Um, kind of a, buy copies fairly widely. I think what's interesting is, at some point, I'm sure we'll get. I don't think you'll reissue it. I think you'll get a different autobiography from Gregor Townsend, and it'd be interesting. I'd be fascinated to know what. A bit about the Andy Robinson years as assistant coach in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, because this is this just covers the the player years. You know, what about the uh, the coaching? You know, especially as there's a few digs at the SRU and at um, sort of Glasgow being made the second team when Glasgow's not been a big rugby city. Mm. Uh, but then he takes over there and um, sort of takes over. Takes over Europe almost. No, no, I, well, I think that's the Pro 14. I don't, and that's that's the thing is I don't think this is why it's worth reading this book now because I don't think, and I might be wrong, but I don't think Gregor Townsend would write any future book in this candid, same candid way he's written this book if he was to write no, it now. No, I, I agree with that. I think it's um, uh, he never comes across as angry or anything like that. Uh, you know, he's, he's the Townsend that we've seen in press conferences. He's a very calm, measured man. But you know, when when he disagrees with something, he's not afraid to say it. Mm. And the, particularly the last chapter, about where he talks about how he thinks the SRU have screwed the, the turnover to professionalism, and particularly the sort of borders area. Um, it makes for very telling reading, mm. um, and and a lot of it I agree with. To be fair. Yeah, I I think there's a, there's a lot that's hard to disagree with. As well. I mean, I know there's my borders bias and things like that, but but still, <laughs> there is a lot, a lot, and I think it come, it does come down to, I think the arguments I was having on Twitter a couple of weeks ago about the kind of central. I would say the central belt because I don't think it is unique to Glasgow. It's more the end, kind of Embra centric approach to things that anything that's happening outside of Embra doesn't really matter, and as long as players are coming through schools, then everything's working fine. As long as we've got enough players to play international rugby, then everything's great. To hang with the condition of the clubs and to hang with 
you know, facilities and things like that elsewhere, they can sort themselves out. It's Smile not. It. It's much more balanced than that. I think it's much more balanced than that. And at some at some point, I will have time to write that article and write that rant for the blog. One of the great things I've always thought about Sean Gray was that um, like he'd get put on a development contract at the SRU. It's like, all right, you can be a sub for Glasgow Warriors. You can be in their sort of wider training squad. And he said, no, I want to keep playing for Camus Lang. Mm-hmm. I need I need game intensity. And that's I think that's what we need more than anything is that we can't just like molly call the people through school systems and be like, oh yeah, oh, but you're doing great. You play for the right team. Nah, you get out there, do you get yourself battle hardened? Do you get yourself smashed in the face a few times? You know, you learn the dark arts. You you learn on the job. Yeah. And um, particularly if you're someone like a back row or, or even if you're a standoff, you know, you're going to get rattled a lot of the time. Yeah, um, and especially, I mean, especially in the front row, I think, personally, I think that's why Xander Ferguson struggled early on. I think technically, I think probably in, against up against the scrummaging machine, I think Xander Ferguson probably looked to the real deal. But he really struggled at scrum time early on in his career. And I think, well, I think that's because he wasn't if he because he'd come through the school system rather than coming up through if he'd played in National One, he would learn all the tricks in the trade and how to combat them. Yeah, he'd have some gnarly loose head against him, like angling in, sort of try to deliberately try to screw with him. Like Xander will be like, Look, my bind's perfect, my, my angle's perfect. But it's just someone else. The the opposite uh opposite number will be like Wait, I know how to milk a penalty out of this. That's what Ireland did to him in his first game for Scotland. Um, they they milked penalties out of him by angling in and cheating, um, and just like playing to the ref. Whereas if you've come through sort of competitive games, going from say, you know, school sixteen up to eight, well, if you go through Super Six or club, uh, you learn these kind of things. You learn how these your opposite number is going to try and screw you. And you counteract it. Yeah, exactly. You need to be turned over. You need to be turned over by the forty-year-old guy who's pu- who's puffing and panting around uh, the pitch. But when it comes to scrum time, is going to turn you <laughs> to turn you seven ways to Sunday. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the games that Tenzer talks about uh, where he's, Ian Smith is open side flanker. Right? He says, "I think Ireland continually screwed the scrum so that he couldn't. Ian Smith couldn't then get out and go and help him." It was a, just a, a it was perpetual fouling, but the ref let it away. Yeah, uh, and so like it's, um, sort of t- talking of player canniness um, after Scotland they beat England at Six Nations a couple of years ago. Uh, what Ireland did when they did picking goals was they deliberately ran at Barkley and or Watson, so that they they then couldn't get their hands over the ball at the ruck because they were the tackler first mm. tackler. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's all these little canny nuggets. Well, it's actually it's interesting. Something that that Townsend says earlier on in the book is that he he was selected from for Gala, I think, as a teenager, and he had the opportunity. Basically, he could have carried on playing for Gala, but he dropped back down to school level, and he said it's one of his big regrets because he didn't learn on the job. He said yeah. he, he he thinks he would have benefited much more from learning on the job. Yeah, it's that it's like he sort of played. Basically, a, a a year uninterrupted. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he was just kind of bossing at school level, so you weren't actually learning anything. You were just sort of settling into 
our own norms. Just like, I know I can beat this guy by doing this, I know I can beat this team just because I'm so good at this, rather than actually stepping up and yeah. putting yourself out of your comfort zone. But that's one thing that Townsend did, was he always he wanted to put himself out of his comfort zone. Uh, either by playing in Australia or France or then going to South Africa when he was like 30 odd years old. Um, the thing is, we commended, you know, it's, uh, it's why he's got such a good rugby brain. Uh, fair enough, you know, results have been a bit topsy turvy since he's been head coach, but and this man is a, is a genuine scholar of the game. Um, mm. you, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who knows more about different playing systems in particular. Who could then go and manage? Yeah, and I think oh, yeah, that's, and Ed, Eddie Jones is an arsehole on it as well. <laughs> oh yes, I, I almost neglected this. Yeah, Eddie. Yeah, I was like, oh wow, there's the Eddie Jones being a sweary bird. Um, when when he was Australia coach and just before we played them, he said Scotland would probably resort to picking a fight to win the match because he's a disrespectful little arsehole. <laughs> Because he's Eddie Jones. He's Eddie Jones. Oh, he's such a lovable little scamp who I hope gets hit by a tractor. <laughs> and on that note... Cut. Yes. <laughs> Maybe cut that out. He's, he, I, I hate the fuck <laughs> So what have we, I think essentially what we've learned is Gregor Townsend is incredibly intelligent, knows a lot about rugby, but execution often lets him down. And yes. that... May be the story. May, may still be the story of his life, but hopefully, I mean, it, it, you know, it's a shame the Six Nations has been interrupted. He may well found a way through that. Like what the big, it almost reaffirms what you know. All the positive sides you think about Craig Townsend is that he is, you know, he's a remarkably intelligent man who loves rugby intensely and deeply, and has a particular style that he wants to play. It's just the fact we've not been able to implement that. Yeah. But he's, I think he's he's shown in the last few games that um, you know he's he's open to diversifying as he had to do mm-hmm. when he played in different uh, different claims. Um, and you know, I, I think it's I, mean, I I do love I love Gregor Townsend as a player. Um, you know, he was head coach when Glasgow won the, the Pro Twelve. So you know, I, I'm a big Tooney fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just hope that he can kickstart what's been a misfiring Scotland head coach job last yeah. year now. Which, and again, you know, he he seems to learn. He always, he's he's always his whole kind of thing is about learning and different experiences and exposing himself to different experiences. And it's just, like I said, I think and I think he does do that. It's just sometimes lost in the execution. Yeah, I think something maybe gets too muddled. Yeah. In his own, because there's so much going on there, he doesn't have a direct plan. But one of the things, well, like he's talking about um, Scotland's preps for the twenty, uh, sorry, two thousand three World Cup, and things are getting confused because it's like we start playing a wide game, then we want to go conservative. Um, whereas you know he was comfortable playing a wide game, Redpath was comfortable playing a wide game, you know. Is is he falling into the same trap? You know, because he he wanted to play the way game, but then he realised it wasn't making results. Um, but then you'd say that you know people were looking at set moves. It was like, oh, once you come off this phase, this is what you do. It's like, well, what about Plan B? What about Plan C? You know, what if if A isn't an option because of the defensive, the other team's defensive system? 
where's my plan B? You know, yeah. he, he's he's an intuitive rugby player, as is Finn. And, uh, you know, that's that's what Scotland... He, he talks about it quite a lot. Like, Scotland have always been the team who kind of model our style on the All Blacks and that we need to be fast and nippy and clever. We're not big. Yeah, and, and all the and all the big te- all the best teams he's played in, he talks about the fact that it, it's it, they're not the biggest teams, they're not even the most skillful teams. They're just teams that are good at make with lots of players that are very good at making decisions. Yeah, uh, decision makers. That's one of the things. Well, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to get through there. Um, hopefully, we've inspired you to read the book. Hopefully, if you've read the book. Um, you, you agree with some of what we said, let us know. Um, I think we probably will at some point do Living with the Lions because it feels like we need to. We've talked a lot about Jim Telfany and McGeek, and I think that would be, I think that's something we should we should look at for a future podcast. Um, for the moment, though, we will be back next week with our kind of rugby, uh, rugby reloaded, or what did you call it? Rugby. I don't know. You can't remember. Based. You had a good, good thing for it at the start of the podcast. I'll have to listen back and remember. Yeah, your rugby utopia. Rugby Utopia, yes, yeah. Rugby Utopia, yes. Rugby Utopia, we'll do that next week. So if you've got any suggestions for, for, for how you would relaunch rugby in, in a brave yeah, we'll new even, world. We'll even portmantle it to Rugtopia. Oh, I like that, Rugtopia. Very good, Rugtopia, that's what we're doing next week. So get in touch with your ideas of how to make rugby better if you're going to relaunch it from scratch. Blank bit of paper, keep everything you love, but what are you going to change uh, to make the sport better? Get in touch with us in the normal way. But for the moment, it is goodbye from me and goodbye from Ian. Ciao.